the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me on Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an absolute delight to have Frank DiStefano in the house. He's an expert on American politics and political reform. He's worked in the Congress, in national political campaigns, and is a lawyer for the highly respected Washington firm Williams and Connolly. And he's author of a terrific book, The Next Realignment, Why America's Parties Are Crumbling and What Happens Next. Frank DiStefano, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. James, thank you very much for, uh, for having me. Well, Frank, let me pose several questions that are front of mind for many people outside the Beltway right now. How can our national government be faltering in its most basic functions? On January 6, 2021, there was chaos in a presidential election as certification was threatened in the most serious security breach of the Capitol in modern memory. The southern border in the subsequent year, even amid a global pandemic, has ceased to function to a great extent, causing great stress on our health care and other basic systems. Internationally, the U.S. capped a tragic defeat in Afghanistan with a failure to competently even extricate Americans and allied Afghans and left behind billions in structures, munitions and equipment. And there's much more, yet no one is accountable. Frank DiStefano, what is going on? The quick answer to the question, which we'll get into a lot more detail, I think, today is that we are in the middle of a collapse of our political framework, the political framework that has governed America throughout all of our lives, and and at the start of a, a essentially a political vacuum, a political vacuum that has uh, we, we our leaders don't have the direction to act. We're seeing corruption and decline. There's a vacuum for people with bad intentions to exploit. And that vacuum is caused because there is a disconnect between our political framework, uh, between Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives throughout the 20th century and the problems that we now face. And that this is not a new situation. This is something that's happened many times in American history. And in fact, is part of the, 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 the structure of our republic. This is, uh, people think politics in America, there's this left-right spectrum and it's the same debate that we've had forever over time, when in fact it's, it's, a, it's a process of, of creation and destruction and then rebirth. And we happen to now live in one of the periods where we're of, 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 of destruction and then hopefully rebirth and, and refreshing our republic and refreshing uh, our politics and our parties. Well, Frank Stefano, and your knowledge of history is very profound and you're quite erudite uh, as a writer and speaker. 
Let's go back to the beginning because the founders of the country were frankly appalled by the history of two-party competition in Great Britain that they had seen in their century between the Tories and the Whigs as they were beginning to be known. And when we've had problems in this country, uh, particularly historically in the party system, there's been a big difference. And that was we were not a great power for most of that time in those mm -hmm. times of chaos. Work us through this. Right. Well, right. I mean, as you said, right, our founders had this idea that uh, they wanted to build, you know, they were enlightenment figures. They wanted to build an enlightenment republic of, of reason. And they saw political parties as, as essentially corruption. Um, and if you look at it, there is an argument that's not ridiculous, that political parties are essentially a conspiracy to get around all of the protections that the founders had put in the Constitution. Um, you know, they had hoped that people would come together and, and reason to, to solutions. And, and a political party is about getting around all the checks and balances so that a, a, a faction of people can coordinate across all the different uh, separations of power at different institutions of government. And they saw that initially as, as a form of, of corruption. But what happened was very early on, um, they created a two-party system themselves with Thomas Jefferson and, and Alexander Hamilton kind of each becoming the center of a, of, of a political faction and creating the Federalist and the Democratic Republicans. And they did that because it turned out that um, to make the Republic work, it required some degree of, of, of coordination and that uh, to channel action into to policy, people needed to work together. So they ended up creating two parties. And then the really interesting thing was, you know, after that debate between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans was solved, you know, we had the era of good feelings where we tried to operate without parties. Everybody thought, all right, that was a mistake. And, and then the Republic didn't work because uh, this was under under uh, President Monroe, and we declared that there were no parties, and everybody started looking out for themselves, and they weren't working together. And so we've had a two-party system ever since. And what, what the, the parties, what they're supposed to do, and, and the way the American Constitution and, and the way our republic is set up, what they're supposed to do is they're essentially supposed to, uh, you know, channel ideas into to action, to be able to, where there is a, a majority and there are whatever the greatest problems that need to be solved to get people together and to work out and debate it in a coherent way and then solve that problem. And it, when the parties are working, that's what they do. And when those problems are solved, then they no longer work and then the republic doesn't work and everything starts to fall apart. So, you know, that's why we have this process where, you know, in a time of crisis, we tend to come together and throw out the old political world and we, we build two political parties with new coalitions and new ideologies that are built around solving whatever is the greatest problem of that age. And, and that's why I look at parties as essentially a great debate. They are more than anything, a, a, a vehicle for a debate over uh, how to solve whatever is the, the, the biggest thing 
that Americans really want dealt with at a time. And when that debate ends and when the problem ends, the, the parties lose their focus and then they start to come apart and there's stagnation and there's corruption and there's decline and institutions stop working. And then when things get bad enough, uh, they either somebody comes along and, and, and reinvents them and, and, and we have a, a relatively still traumatic but peaceful realignment and we enter into a new age or they completely come apart and we have to do that from the rubble. Um, I, I don't know if I, there was a second part of your question I didn't get to, but I'll let you. <laughs> no, that's all great. Let's go back to history a little bit more sure. because uh, one could argue that we have had a two-party system since, certainly since uh, around the time of the Civil War. Yet one big change is that in the past, whether it's the start of the Republican Party in the 1850s, the emergence of the Progressive Party, the Socialist Party, the Dixiecrats, and so on, in those situations, third parties came in and the legacy parties worked around them. So the minority party would tend to absorb, let's say, a third party, a prohibitionist, or all kinds of these parties. And then as the larger party broke up, there'd be a realignment. Well, but today, I, I, we're I not seeing thing, that competition anymore. It's blocked, it seems. No, that, that's true. Um, but I think the, the, the first thing, and I probably wasn't clear about this too, I think it's important when you look at political parties not to focus just on the name, right? I, you look at a political party, what it really is, is uh, an idea, a, a unique ideology and a coalition. So when you have, what tends to happen, so people come together and you create uh, a coalition of people with a unique ideology that lasts for decades and decades at a time. When that comes apart and gets reinvented, you can have a party that gets taken over with the same name, but it's a different, unique coalition of people in ideologies. So it still calls itself the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, but is it really the same party, right? It's 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 the same party the way you know the Brooklyn Dodgers and the LA Dodgers are on paper the same baseball team, but obviously you know they play in a different city. It's a whole it's a completely different roster of players. It's a different team. So when people usually talk about realignments, they would say that there were four realignments in five party systems, right? There's the the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans at the uh, foundation. There's the Whigs and the Democrats. Jackson versus Adams and, and uh, Henry Clay. Then there's a civil war and we have the Democrats and the Republicans, which we've had ever since. But you have in 1896, right? There, there were the civil war era Democrats and Republicans and they were having uh, a debate over decades that was essentially over the recriminations of the civil war and, and the post-civil war settlement. And that went into decline in the Gilded Age. And then you had William Jennings Bryan show up and we reboot he basically takes the Democratic Party, he takes what was the Populist Party, imports it into the Democratic Party, ends up throwing out all of the, the ideas of the coalition of people that had been Democrats and takes what had been a third party and essentially imports its ideology um, under the name of the Democrats, taking the better brand name while taking the ideas from the third party. While Teddy Roosevelt, who I know you know very, very well, then has to, you know, the, the progressive movement responds and and the rebel the Republican Party has to kind of revolutionize itself to respond to what happens. And you get a new Republican Party that's 
still in some ways the Civil War Republican Party, but also has a, a it's 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 also a new force. So you have still a Democratic and Republican Party, but they're essentially different organizations in that they represent sort of a different group of people and a different set of ideas. And then the same thing happens again in the New Deal, where under FDR, when you know the Republican Party in the Depression essentially collapses under Hoover, the old uh, progressive Republican Party of the turn of the century, uh, when, when Hoover loses, the Republican Party becomes sort of an empty shell and FDR takes over the old Democratic Party and in, takes his New Deal brain trust and revolutionizes what it means to be a Democrat and essentially invents New Deal liberalism as a new governing ideology and creates a new Democratic Party. And then you get everyone who opposes that gets kind of rallies together in the husk of the old Republican Party and and creates a new Republican Party around conservatism, around you know what has now become conservatism since you know the, the middle of the 20th century conservatism of Buckley and eventually Goldwater and Reagan. And that Republican Party is really a new thing that gets created also in the New Deal. So I would say that you know each of these are, while on paper the same party name, they are essentially a new political party. And then you have, so in each time when the old party system starts falling apart, you get a revolution in the parties, whether it is uh, a Brian or an FDR coming along to completely revolutionize it from inside, or you know a situation like when the Whigs fall apart and you get a, a brand new party name like you got with, uh, with the Republicans. One big change is that we've basically had the Franklin Roosevelt domestic settlement since 1935 and the Franklin Roosevelt liberal international order since 1945. Mm -hmm. So these are very long in tooth and they're basically at their end. You, you see that in a lot of areas, I would argue. So how yeah, do we fix I, this? Yeah, and I, I would agree. And, and I, you know, I think the core problem when you look at where we're at right now, all right, so politics throughout our lives has been this fight between liberalism and conservatism which if you really peel it apart are was the fight over the new deal right so fdr we have the great depression which was ultimately a crisis i would say over modernity about you know the complexity of the modern world you get all of a sudden we have factories and airplanes and, and telephones and and then the economy implodes and people lose faith in the american system and we have to figure out what to do and FDR comes up with a new ideology where he basically believes that we need to deal with this complexity. And he takes ideas that had not been combined that way before, which were essentially uh, populism, which had been part of the Democratic Party back in the day, this I, being a workers party for the people, and combines it with progressivism, which had been a Republican idea, and creates what we now just call liberalism, New Deal liberalism, and creates this whole New Deal agenda, right? And then the people who oppose that have a lot of objections, which are usually loosely grouped between either that this New Deal liberalism was an assault on on liberty, um, free market, you know, uh, uh, free enterprise, or that it was in some way un-American, that it was a uh, uh, that it would cut into what the founders would have called, you know, uh, Republican virtue, the idea that that uh, the American system and the the traits of character, a democracy needed certain traits of character to survive and that you were undercutting those traits of character, the, the sort of the cultural side. And that gets forged together into conservatism. 
And then we have this debate. It's originally a debate over the New Deal, right, on, on, on all these innovations that, that FDR comes up with. And that debate is continuing through today, like we have it for decades and decades, through the end of the Second World War. Um, even if you look into the 60s, we start looking to cultural issues. But what we do is we convert what had been economic liberalism into social liberalism, applying the same ideology from economic questions to social questions. And we take conservatism from economic conservatism, and we start applying it to social questions, to social conservatism. But liberalism and conservatism, we invented them in the 1930s. And this is still how we frame everything, except we don't live in a mid 20th century industrial world. We have all these new problems. We have this uh, information age economic system that has happened that um, it's completely different. We work differently, we live differently. The cold world world is gone. We have the rise of China and uh, we have AI, we have automation, uh, we have the climate issue. We have all these problems that have happened. And the answers to none of them are easily found in the toolkits that we have. Because when we look at these problems, the tools we have are either more New Deal programs, style programs, or fight big government. And what do you do about China? Okay, fight big government. It's a non sequitur. So their parties no longer, and by the party, culturally, the way we engage with politics, we don't have a tool to deal with the actual problems, but people want those problems solved. And if we can't come up with a tool set, nothing gets done and people get frustrated and angry and the system starts coming apart until we can somehow find a new tool set to recombine us into a new formation to actually start solving all of these problems. Well, let's talk about that tool set. We have, as you know, about 40% of the country, give or take, self-identifies as independents. And that's not mm -hmm. just people who don't know what they're doing, despite what a lot of the Democrat and Republican partisans want to think, and about 30% for each of the two legacy parties. So what do we do to make some change? Because it's been literally 30 years of mm -hmm. debt, war, stasis, and the world's not going to wait on us forever. No, yeah, and, 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 it, and, and it's very alarming. I, and I couldn't agree more because we are sort of frozen in inaction. And, you know, I said it's a vacuum. Uh, you know, we, we feel like politics is very intense, but if you really look at what's happening, it's been 20, 30 years since anything has happened. We're not actually addressing anything. It's just a vacuum of stagnation. And the world is passing us by. And people are getting frustrated and angry because, you know, at the end of the day, government needs to deal, you know, it's not going to go away. And people want a job and they want to eat and they want somebody to address their concerns. So, okay. So, but in the parties, people have lost faith in them because they don't believe that they have answers. So what do we do about that? Well, okay, well, let's look at history. What? What has always historically happened in moments like this? Well, one of two things. The, f the, the, the good, there's, a, there's sort of a good case and a bad case. The best case scenario is leadership. So somebody comes along, um, usually from the outside, that takes over one of the existing parties to drag it into the future, to throw out its guts, to, to build a new ideology and a new coalition 
to unite a different group of people, but around compelling ideas about how to solve the problems that people want solved. And that's what happened in the populist and progressive era, and that's what happened under FDR. The bad case scenario is what happens if leadership doesn't happen? What if we don't have leaders that step up capable of doing that? And then the system falls apart because it's unsustainable and it's falling apart as it is. And if you let it just go, it will fall apart. And we have to do that work from the outside, from the ashes. We have to wait for things to crumble and people come together from the outside. So looking at that, what is the solution? I believe the solution. So I was waiting for a long time, believing that leaders would step up. And I think that hasn't happened. And there are some structural reasons why it seems very unlikely at this point to happen, which means if we want to prevent the, the downside, I think all of us who look at this situation and find it alarming are going to probably need to come together from the outside and, and form a new movement with new ideas, with a fresh perspective, and one that can either take over one of the parties or, or found a new one. That, that's where I've been coming around to as the, as the answer. So do you think this country of 330 plus million people can operate with two parties or do we need to look at a more officially multi-party system and think about structural adjustments in that score? Well, I, so I find this debate very, very interesting because I, the only way we would get to a multi-party system is with some major, major reform. Even things like adding ranked choice voting, some of these ideas that are being right now proposed, that we could do ranked choice voting, open primaries, um, they will make it much easier for new parties to form. But I don't believe that they will make multiple parties long-term sustainable because the ultimate, the ultimate reason we have two parties in this country is the combination of majority rule and federalism. So majority rule, to get anything done, you need 50%. And this is Duvinger's law, a political science idea that when you require a majority for action, the system will trend to two coalitions because if you had three or four different groups working together, they would figure out if they got together and could get over 50%, um, they could get their way. And if you were getting 60 or 70%, you have extra people you're satisfying you don't need, so you start to shed them. And when you have two groups trying to get to 50% coalitions, they each shed people when they get too many, they add people when they don't have enough, and they both get to about a, a sustainable 50-50 majority. And then you add federalism in it, where you have to coordinate action, not just in one entity like a parliament, but two houses of Congress, governors, state houses, you have a system that requires coordinating action across a vast country of 350 million people. So if you're going to do that, multiple parties, you need to get majorities, not just in the parliament, but you need them everywhere in order to get anything done. And so you always end up trending back to two parties. And I, I, so I look at ideas of, of a, of a long-term third party as likely a temporary situation that would eventually go back to two parties. But I, so I always look at this as not a third party, but a new party, right? That, that without changing the structure, I, I, like even if you look at a, a multi-party system as well, you still tend to get 
coalitions have to form, right? And you get people who tend to work together in coalition. So the important thing is to have the mechanisms in place that you can get the renewal, that you don't lock out the new parties, the innovators, who are going to come up and replace the old parties with new ideas. And then, and I think historically that was much easier to do than it is now. Um, so that, and I think that's very important to bring about the renewal that you need. So when things stagnate, we can reinvent them. Well, what do we do now? So for example, uh, there are many people, and I'm sure you know many people like this as well, who have not done a positive vote for president in decades. Mm -hmm. And they simply vote against whoever they fear the most. Yeah. And this has become such a problem. And of course, the partisans don't see it. They think if they convince you the other side is just terrible, that they have license to do whatever they will, is they get in. But I think, and I think a lot of that has to do with the lack of actual ideas underneath, right? So, to, so what do you have to do to build a party, right? How do you, you think about what a political party in America has to do, and it's actually quite staggering. You have to get half of, as you said, a country of 350 million people on the same page and working together for decades, right? That is a difficult task. And to do it, you, you can't just, you can't do it on election by election basis. You have to somehow inspire them with ideas, with an agenda, with in a sense that you understand what is broken that they want fixed and that you have a way to do it and that this big idea can trickle down to all sorts of actual practical concerns. So you're not looking for white papers and laundry lists of discrete proposals. You're looking for a big inspiring idea that is directly relevant to our problems. And when that's missing, right, politics become just about personal ambition, about resentments, about anger. When the substance is gone, that's all that's left is, is the negative. It's, it's the part of negative partisanship, tribalism, and um, ambition for ambition's sake. And the way out of that is you know, and people feel like so much is at stake, but when you actually look at what's at stake, nothing is actually happening, right? It's all talk. It's all talk and anger, but it's not substance. So what do you recommend, Frank, that people do right now? Right I now. recommend, so I think people who look at the world this way need to start getting serious and coming together to reinvent those ideas. And so the first step to building a new movement is coming together to getting the, the ideas and the perspective and, and having people realize that some of the people that they're supporting that, that used to be their allies no longer are, people who they see as their enemies, some of them are their allies. And that they need to get serious about the, starting with the ideas of how are we gonna reinvent this? Once you do that, and that's not a, a long process, but it's a serious process. And it, it only takes a small amount of time. Now you have the nucleus that you can build something around. And once you do that, th then we can start launching, running people for office, getting 10% of the Congress. If you could get three senators and 20 members of the House all on board with a new agenda, now you would have something, right? Now you would have the spark of something people had to take seriously. 
and then you can grow it from there. And, and I think this is totally doable. People look at, at new parties as somehow impossible. When I look and say, um, in moments of transition like this, they're inevitable. They happen all the time. So what about Andrew Yang's party? Well, so I've been watching him closely. He, okay, well, let's start with, he is a potential person to do something like that, okay? Because how did this guy who nobody had heard of all of a sudden become a top tier presidential candidate? Well, it wasn't because of his position or his name ID or the money that he'd raised or his political talent. It was because he was one of a few people that was trying to think fresh and new and people were so excited by somebody that they were willing to support a guy who was so unusual as Yang for a presidential candidate. Okay, but so the question is, will his, he now says he's creating a new party. Well, right now the substance is not out there. It's just, it's just a flag that he's planting. If he can actually start doing the, the, the big ideas, and if he can start bringing people over from both sides of the aisle, then yeah, it, either he, it, he could do it. But I'll tell you this, I think I'm 100% certain somebody is going to do it. Um, and they're going to do it soon because I just look at historically, this is what always happens. And you look at all the incentives, the incentives are there. It's just there for somebody to take. There was a, a space, uh, an empty space in the middle of politics, looking for a movement to move into it and, and, to, exp and to, to, to provide what is missing. And it's like a startup where there's a, a market opportunity and, and I don't know which startup will, will do it, but somebody's going to take this opportunity. Who do you look to in history as examples of a small number of people you think particularly we should study today in this respect? Mm -hmm. um, I think, I mean, you, okay, so you look at each of the, the realigning eras, and I'm going to separate out from who I personally love their politics from, from the, the effect that they had, right? Um, uh, the, the ones that I always look to is uh, uh, Jackson and Clay, right? With both in, in, in Van Buren with Jackson. Van, Martin Van Buren was really his political mind. Jackson was the polarizing figure, and Van Buren was the guy who built a new party. And Henry Clay, a guy who took a disparate coalition of people who didn't have much in common and built them into a, a, an idea, a, a, a group with an idea that became the Whig Party. Then William Jennings Bryan and, and Teddy, uh, I think, and, and I know you're a big Teddy Roosevelt fan, as am I, because what was so remarkable about him is that um, he was able to do amazing things at a time of peace and prosperity, which usually is very difficult to do. But William Jennings Bryan, who came along and took a, a civil war party that was defined purely by uh, resentment and turned it into a vehicle for, for dealing with the problems of the, the industrialization that had left the family farm economy behind. And Teddy Roosevelt, who dealt with the, the opposite of the problems of the cities and in, in, in the urban areas. And then and then FDR and Buckley. Um, Buckley, a guy who I think is very, William F. Buckley Jr., who's very underestimated as merely a pundit, but is really remarkable because what he did was he took, again, he did like Clay, took a disparate group of people and, and built them into a ideological force that was able to redefine the Republican Party. Were you acquainted with Buckley? I know I, I I never met the man. I never met the man. I wish I had. 
I, I was on several occasions, and I totally share your view. I think he's vastly underestimated because yes. I think I think future historians will really um, look at him differently because, you know, you look at, at at Goldwater or Reagan, the guys who implemented the ideas, and and they miss out that um, the architect whose plan they were building was Buckley. And that Buckley was really the foundation of of all of that. He's not just a, a writer. He's he's one of the most important political figures, I think, of American history. And he very much cultivated talent. Mm -hmm. I mean, he built that whole movement out of nothing, really. He he founded, you know, a guy in his 20s finds a, founds a little money-losing political magazine and forges into it a, a political movement that uh, dominates a political party in a whole era of America. Well, let's talk about the law. You are a highly credentialed lawyer as well. Mm -hmm. And this country used to have a tradition, I guess that gives away my view, but I think it's obvious, uh, uh -huh. of the lawyer-statesman ideal. And that I, appears to be absolutely gone. What do you think? I, 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 no, I, I agree with you. And um, so, so, right, so the lawyer-statesman ideal is this idea that the, uh, the lawyer has a special, you know, duty to the republic, as I see it. Right? It, it's somebody who is supposed to be effectively the priesthood for America's civic religion, and and have all of the the the, the roles of of being a guardian and all of this, and and that has been very much in decline. And I think for a couple of reasons. I think in part because of the economics of the profession, the the becoming creating massive law firms which is a response to, I think, lawyers. I, I think it's, it's a re response to, to bankers and CEOs as their compensation is raised. Um, lawyers and similar thing in the medical profession, doctors have wanted to do the same thing. And the only way when you're selling hours to do that is to increase leverage. And the only way to do that is to build massive 5,000 person law firms. And that would have been ridiculous 50 years ago, the idea of 10,000 lawyers working together as in one company. It's now an economic enterprise and no longer uh, a, a, a civic priesthood for democracy. But I also think it's a decline of, of this Republican virtue idea that we've seen this decline of citizenship, this idea of citizenship everywhere that, um, and particularly within the, the professional classes where lawyers come from, I think, you know, we've always had this idea that that th these enlightenment ideas and and that that democracy was a special charge and that we all had a duty. And I think there's been a decline across the whole country in that idea. I think we're starting to become a little complacent with democracy. We've had it safe for so long. and and the importance of all the work that goes into sustaining that has declined. So it, when combined, yeah, there has been a total decline. Although I would say, I think still, if push comes to shove, it's the lawyers and the judges who still will, I, I would trust a lawyer or a judge to step up and protect the, the constitution and to protect the enlightenment values of the republic over a non-lawyer simply because of the, uh, the culture of the profession. I don't know what your view is on that. I would regretfully disagree. Really? I think no, I think the profession is pretty thoroughly corrupted. Mm -hmm. I was very taken by the article by Judge Patrick Schiltz that I'll put in the show notes, where he outlines 
from his own experience as a lawyer, uh, the kind of corruption that takes place uh-huh. as young lawyers come in. Yeah. They fudge timesheets first, and they eventually uh, become entirely focused on money mm-hmm. and unmoored. And so they're basically like cops. Um, they're people in suits who are abusing privilege and professionalism. And I think you see that the lack of trust in lawyers, it just, it can't be uh, any worse. I mean, just every day you see something about some so-called elite lawyer involved in some unethical activity. Uh, Just this time in uh, October, 2021, a murder and swindle case out of the Carolinas. Uh, This stuff has become, and it's not just we know more, there's something going on. And I think you see it too. There's not the number of people you could look at and say, well, there's our next McCloy or Elihu Root or anything like that. I could name a few who are extraordinary, like Michael Trainer, former head of the American Law Institute, always extraordinary, but I just don't see at the moment that attention is being given to this. And would you say, because this is my instinct, is that it has a lot of it has to do with massive making law firms, elite law firms into massive corporations. Absolutely. And or partnerships either way. But when they've lost their mooring and they're basically just trying to compete one amongst another for more income, that's insane. And I, and I think it's a status thing where, you know, as a lawyer, right, lawyers, doctors, bankers, they were all professional. They, they, they see themselves as professional peers. And when CEO compensation goes so much higher, when banker compensation, because they're working off leverage, then the doctors and the lawyers feel like they're losing status. And so they have to catch up. And then that causes them to start chasing money in a way that is at odds with what the law profession is supposed to be. That That's sort of my instinct. I don't know. No, I, I share that. I think it's maybe even worse than you're saying, because a lot of these lawyers don't want to take the risks of people who start businesses or CEOs and so on, but they want the benefits. And so they're really playing a double game, a very cowardly one. And uh, I think it's it's a question of character almost. Yeah, well, and this is this whole lack of citizenship. You know, one of the things that alarms me, I think, about America at the moment is this complacency about citizenship, that citizenship is a duty, right? Democracy, it, it, the, the cost of the privilege of choosing your leaders is self-government. You're not electing a king to rule you. You are participating in self-government, and that comes up that has that carries duties to to know what you're doing to sometimes put your own self-interest second to do what's best for the long-term interest of the country or to be willing to let the other guys win one because you understand it's it's a give and take you know and that was if you read anything about the way american leaders thought about the country until i don't know really until world war ii at least that was like everywhere this this fear that we would lose the democracy and that we had to be constantly vigilant and we had to be citizens. And as we've gotten complacent, that's declined. And I think that's that's part of it. And it's sort of everywhere in the culture and it's very hard to re-inculcate that. And you see it in the whole meritocracy in general, right? The varsity blue scandal, it's beyond the law. Yeah, well, and this is the whole question of meritocracy. Um, you know, there's been a, a lot of debate everywhere about the cost that we didn't see to 
when you, when you go meritocracy and you don't have a ruling class, right? It's great in that, you know, somebody like me in the old Yankee ruling class, I'm Italian. I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have got to go to fancy schools the same way and all that, right? Same here. But same here. yeah, but, but at the same time, the cost is you're telling everybody who wins that it, it used to be you were born into leadership. That meant you had a duty. Now it's a prize that you won. And since you won the prize, you're a winner and you deserve it. And everyone who doesn't get it didn't deserve it. And so you should take all you can get because this is your prize for winning. And that is a corrosive attitude in leadership. And there was, a, there was something I wrote about um, uh, the, the reasons people seek positions of power, right? There's really three reasons. Status, glory, utopia. Most people are just status seekers. They want leadership because they want to be somebody. They want to be important to whatever. But, the, but they'll just follow, okay? They're just gonna do whatever they have to do to keep the position. What matters is that you have essentially, you know, utopians are dangerous because they want power because they wanna make everybody obey them to create utopia. But it's the glory seekers, the people who do it because they wanna leave a legacy. And the only way you leave a legacy that people in 200 years remember is if you do something really good. No one's gonna care about you unless 300 years from now, people can look back and say, thank you. You know, you look at George Washington and we remember him because people appreciate Lincoln. The sacrifices they made, the, the, the foresight that they had. And, and our system uh, was kind of built around putting glory seekers at the top of, uh, of the, the, the heights of institutions. And, and as that declines and you get status seekers, it's troublesome. Well, let's talk about Woodrow Wilson. What is your view of his historical place? And you, of course, went to Princeton, mm -hmm. that he largely created the modern Princeton. I have to say I'm not a big fan of Woodrow Wilson, um, in part because uh, in part because just reading about him, he was a very difficult, unpleasant person uh, in that he he didn't he was very, very bright, but he knew he was bright. And so he didn't want to listen to anybody and he didn't want to take in information and he would just act sure that he had the right answer and he didn't consult and whatnot. So, um, and, and he could be very abrasive that way. And I think it caused him to make some bad decisions as well as now when we recalculate his, his legacy on, on questions like race, which were terrible even in his own time. Um, and so, you know, I, I've always saw him as sort of a Clintonian figure also who was triangulating. He was trying to steal Teddy Roosevelt's thunder as a progressive when he was really a bourbon Democrat. And so anyway, I, I don't know if that was a good answer, but I, I'm not a huge fan of Wilson. So Frank Stefano, are there any books or publications you would urge people to follow to continue to be involved in these issues of reform? Yeah, um, uh, you know, I've I, right now, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of American Purpose, where I write uh, for some time. Um, that was Francis Fukuyama founded uh, American Purpose, and it's a uh, it's a great uh, sort of site and intellectual community that's dedicated to defending and promoting liberal democracy, and they have really brilliant people who write there. Um, I'm a big fan of of, of them. Um, I definitely think people should be reading you <laughs> as well as uh, well, thank you. my book as well. 
Um, you know, as well as, as, you know, I'm a big fan of Substack in general because I think uh, one of the great things about this moment is there's a lot of really brilliant people who can express themselves without a filter and long form. And we're in a startup moment again that nobody, you know, the big question is nobody has the answers yet. We're figuring it out. And in these moments where you're figuring it out, you need to listen to all sorts of voices to see who has an insight that you don't have. And, you know, all these substacks right now, there's so many brilliant people who in the old format were being edited, they were being, to be brief, they weren't able to think out loud. And, and right now, thinking out loud is the most important thing we could do to figure out how to deal with our problems. Well, Frank Stefano, thank you. It's been a delight having you with us. And thank you for your leadership and service in political reform. And thank you very much for having me. It's been, it's been a great pleasure. I hope we'll be able to do this again. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.